Welcome to episode 461 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here today don't reflect the views of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the News Roundup, we have a great panel. Gus Hurwitz, who has a new job. He is the Director of Law and Economics Programs at the International Center for Law and Economics and soon to be a senior lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law. Boy, that's a mouthful. Uh, I guess I'm never going to say all of that again, but congratulations. Yes, thank you. And I'm not new at ICLE, actually. I'm just no longer at the previous place. <laughs> all right. And Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting, formerly with the Department of Homeland Security. Martin McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at Brookings. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host, really the chief provocateur for today's program. I actually had somebody say, after they listened to the Jimmy Wales interview, they said, you know, you're much less of a provocateur when you interview people one-on-one, and you should do more of that and less of the provocation. I don't think I'll do that. Okay, let's start with if, if it's any If it's any consolation to you, Stuart, I was literally at a conference at Duke University earlier this month, and one of the attendees there said to me, I love Stuart. He is such a professional troll. He is great. <laughs> and I wanted to convey to you that love bomb from a colleague who shall go nameless, because I'm sure they wouldn't. But it was, I'm not making that up. No, I know. I'm going to have to embrace it because many people have said that to me. Okay, let's get trolling. Artificial intelligence. There's now a new statement out on artificial intelligence from a bunch of people in the field that is much shorter and doesn't tell us what to do other than to say the risk of extinction from AI is a worry. The whole statement is mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Mark McCarthy thinks that is utter hogwash. So <laughs> let me turn it over to him. <laughs> yeah. So look, it was signed by industry leaders and by many respected AI researchers, and it got extensive coverage in the press. But my take is that it was just a stunt, as as a lawyer, Sandra Wachter, said in her piece in The Independent. And some of the more sensible signatories, like Bruce Schneier, quickly expressed Signer's remorse. He said, I don't actually think that AI poses a risk to human extinction. And you know, it was a fundraising gimmick and really an attempt to distract policymakers. The idea seemed to be, let the policymakers deal with these existential risks, and we in business will set the actual rules for AI use. And that was sort of the take uh, by uh, Marietje Schaake, the former EU parliamentarian who's now at Stanford. She says, you know, AI might be novel, but the talking points here are recycled. They're the same ones that Mark Zuckerberg used about social media and Sam Bankman-Fried offered regarding Crypto. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Um, now, I don't remember either of them telling us that, that a cryptocurrency or social media was going to kill us all, that, or that there was even a modest risk of that. That's, that, that's a completely different it, statement. It was, it was the subtext, not the text. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so she found a subtext she didn't like and decided that should be the text. That uh, should be the text, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and her subtext is we here in the business world are best 
place to regulate the very technologies that we produce. And I think she's right about that. That really was the subtext of what the statement was all about. And I think these apolitic warnings are just a distraction. The, the policymakers will wander off into these speculative risks and the industry moves ahead to so, determine when, how, and under what rules AI will be deployed. I was just going to say, so your view, Mark, is that it's a completely Manichaean effort to distract regulators from doing regulation of more narrow gauge things like bias in AI or perceived bias in AI or perceived adverse labor effects. They want us to focus on death and destruction in 50 years so that we don't focus on um, IP problems today. It's not, you know, a conscious strategy, I don't think. I think many of the people who signed that statement really are concerned about those risks. But the function of the statement in the context of the policy discussion is to move the conversation away from these real-world risks and are extraordinarily pressing and time-consuming and expensive to deal with to these other issues, which you know are far less pressing and less worrisome. I'm happy to, to get into some of the real issues, and I think that's really where the debate has to be, because I do think that policymakers can't ignore this new technology. They can't just pretend it's not happening. But I think they go off into the wrong direction when they start thinking, well, you know, AI might develop uh, consciousness and independent autonomy, and we have to worry about that. And these other issues are kind of boring and beside the point, and who cares? They're not interesting. No one will have a front page story about the fraud uses of artificial intelligence. I do think it does function that way as a distraction, regardless of the intentions of the science. Now, Mark, would you uh, be willing to sign on to a statement that statements like these pose an existential risk to reasoned discourse about the policy implications of AI? (laughs) I I wonder how a statement could create an existential risk to anything. (laughs) So I'm astonished by the remarkable unanimity with which the left in particular has just rejected the idea that we should even think about this because they have more important things like copyright protection to worry about. That's Some of this, the reason the regulatory issues are boring is that most of them are not particularly pressing and don't really call for much in the way of regulation. But well, well, but, but they do. I mean, you know, the, the really the, the, copyright the, protection. We need more goddamn copyright protection well, from big well, for there, big content. There is, issue, there is an issue there. I mean, as we saw in today's Getty, just sued of Stability AI. Let them it's sue. Me. They don't need a regulation. They can sue. I hope and they lose. They may or may not win, but there are issues sitting right at the edge of that that do have to be dealt with. The 2019 Copyright Act in the EU allows text and data mining unless the copyright owner uses technological protections. And some people say copyright holders shouldn't be compensated at all. And yeah. so some clarity needs to be gathered about this. And the AI Act that the EU is thinking about does have a disclosure rule, and it's a step towards something. And that something might very well be a kind of compulsory licensing regime that would allow the copyright owners to be compensated and the developers to use their information. So compensated, I, compensated, compensated for their bogus claim that you can't read their stuff and produce stuff that's like it? If you put the copyright holders and the IT companies and a bunch of European bureaucrats in a room, the one loser will be fair use. And there's, there's all kinds of fair use here. 
you have an argument, but there's another argument on the other side. It just has to be dealt with and it can't be subsumed what, under, what, you know, what, fair use solves all really, the problems. Why not just let Getty sue? And if Getty wins and we think that's bad, then we can set about with a new regime. But I think it's going to be hard for them to win this. Well, I mean, there are other issues too, as you know. I mean, fraud is a big issue. Lena Khan has already said that fraud using AI is illegal. Right. The okay. F- so yeah, that that strikes me as easy. That's not well, AI it, regulation. That's regulation. But it is not easy. I mean, because if the AI really does make these uh, scams so much easier to commit, then you need enormous enforcement efforts to stop it. China's noticed the same thing, and they're putting some enormous efforts into trying to stop it. Just because it doesn't create new legal issues doesn't mean it doesn't create new issues. And there okay. are legal issues that are involved in here. What about privacy? I mean, when you use so, chat GPT. So, so let me t- tell me about privacy. Uh, well, let, let me about to. Okay. All right. GPT, you know, when you use it, you enter information into the, the API. Then the, the company uses your personal information in ways that improve the product. Are there privacy issues? Should you have to consent to this? Do companies have a legitimate interest in using this information even without consent? Italy has already raised this sort of stuff in Europe. The U.S. has got a privacy law that's pending at this point. Should they clarify that issue in that? Or should they just say, well, the FTC will figure it out? Can you give me one example of harm, privacy harm that an AI model has caused? That's your view, that there's no privacy issue there, but there clearly are privacy issues there that have to be addressed. And maybe at the end of the day, we do nothing, just like in copyright. Competition. I mean, look, there are forces leading to concentration in the development of AI. It's extremely expensive to do it. That creates scale barriers. Their network effects. More data leads to better AI algorithms. Should the FTC be doing anything at all about this? Maybe they should be looking at it. How about algorithmic price fixing? I mean, if companies tune their pricing algorithms to act together, they might or may not be guilty of illegal price fixing. But, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to use AI as a defense. None of that strikes me as particularly requiring special AI regulation, because most of those things, the economies of scale and the value of enormous investment as a way of building a moat around your business are common problems in antitrust law. So this is why I'm, I get the sense that the people who want to have all these regulations on kind of side issues are freaked out because there's this one other issue that is hard to describe as a side issue. So let, me, let me give you one example where the, there's, they're trying to be inventive in, in creating new regulations. The EU AI Act, they want EU uh, risky AI to undergo a certification process, right? And they're aimed at trying to make sure that developers have assessed the risks associated with this stuff and adopted some sort of mitigation measures. That's in the EU AI Act as proposed, and it's going to be acted on in the next couple of months. So should that apply to general purpose AI and foundational models like ChatGPT, or should it just apply to AI as used? The Parliament's approach is that it should apply to foundational models like ChatGPT, and that's a serious issue. That's apparently it's what triggered Sam Altman to threaten to leave Europe. Well, sure. Because it's nutty. It's basically saying, it's like saying you invented an operating system for a computer and it could be used for bad things. So it's high risk. I, it strikes me as first, they had a construct 
proper regulation, which was there's high risk stuff and there's low risk stuff and we can right. tell the difference and you should do the work. And then they discovered a general purpose AI that wasn't on its face either. And so they just decided, well, let's just regulate anyway. I find that like, I peculiar. think that's an issue. I think that's an issue. And I think, I mean, to my mind, how can you certify a general purpose AI yeah. as safe when all of the risks really emerge only as applied? So I think you've got a point there, but it's an issue and it needs to be dealt with. And apparently the US is all tied up in knots about this. The White House and the Commerce Department support the EU and the U.S. national security officials and some people in the State Department are a little bit more worried about it. So there's a real issue that has to be dealt with. These are all serious issues that have to be brought into the policymakers ambit as opposed to, you know, can we worry about an AI that might develop, you know, an independent agency and consciousness and go off and do crazy things? So Stuart... Since you are a supporter of the application of generally applicable pre-existing law to AI and think that that suffices, which I, I confess is, is something that I tends to resonate with me as well, I assume, you know, having thought about it from this perspective, that you would be supportive of laws and regulations that at least confirm that. So, for example, transparency laws that required people to make clear that they were using AI in the production of whatever product, service, answer a consumer was receiving, so that there was no secret use of AI, right? And also, since some users of AI have tried to avoid liability by suggesting that it was the AI or the AI manufacturer rather than the implementer who was liable, some law that at least clarified where liability and accountability for this lay. I mean, I'm frankly agnostic as to whether or not it's the originator or the implementer. I mean, I imagine you could make a good economic case for one or the other, and I would want to think about more, but I assume you would Except those two. So no, I, not the second, because I think if you're if you've already admitted that having proposed it, you're agnostic about how it turns out. You kind of wonder what's the case for rushing into regulation. Let's figure out where the risk of abuse is and who's in the best position okay. to prevent. I'll be fair, it. but I assume you're okay with the transparency. I guess you know I, that that strikes me as not particularly interesting. Why would I care most of the time that somebody says I'm well, using that, AI or and, not? Then, that, then doesn't that beg the question? Because, you know, it, that's actually one of the very modest proposals up in Congress right now, and it's garnered a great deal of opposition from AI developers who yeah. don't want to, I mean, I guess to be nice to them, they would say it's scarlet lettering. To be unnice to them, it's, it's a way of evading the second possibility of liability if nobody knows who they want. I, again, I don't know which it is, but surely we could agree that, or we should agree, that transparency as to whether or not there's an AI-driven product within whatever I'm consuming ought to be clear. Yeah, I, my guess is that it's going to be, we're going to end up like everybody who's ever walked into a building in California has been warned that yeah. the building contains <laughs> things that could cause cancer. I And I'm afraid we're going to discover there's AI in everything, including every building in California. I'm not sure the value. It, it does help though. I mean, remember that, that when Biden declared that he was a candidate for the presidency, the Republican National Committee had this wonderful ad that conjured up all sorts of 
possibilities if he were reelected, and it was all generated by AI. They labeled it appropriately. To my mind, that really resolved all of the quote misinformation issues. Yeah, I agree with you about that. Uh, that that it, it if you're going to do a parody of somebody, and there's a risk that the people will take it seriously, you should make it clear you're doing a parody. See, you know, the- we've reached agreement and solved the world's <laughs> fine, AI fine. But I <laughs> okay. I think we have beaten that poor AI uh, horse to death, and we've covered the fact that the U.S. government, the administration, is really struggling with this. Interesting that the national security folks are most worried about this, and I assume the problem is that they're afraid that China is not going to restrict anything important about its what its AI does, at least anything military, and that the people who want to regulate AI in the U.S. and in Europe are going to create rules that make it harder to develop AI and use it militarily. And and I guess it's worth pointing out the 24-hour news blip that we had in which a member of the U.S. military, I think it was the U.S. military, said that they were running a simulation using AI to, to conduct attacks and kept telling the AI engine not to do certain things that it had discovered were particularly effective. And so the AI said, well, why don't I just take out your communications capability and then you can't tell me, or maybe I'll just take out your headquarters or I'll take out your broadcasting tower. All things in which basically the AI was coming to the conclusion that it ought to attack the people who thought they controlled it. Now, Almost immediately, the Air Force official who said that said, oh, no, I misspoke. That was just something I heard. It didn't actually happen. But I will say, Mark, that is not an at all an implausible scenario, and it is on the existential side. Yeah, I think the fact that they walked it back is a good indication that they didn't want people to be thinking that the military was in the process of developing a weapon that could turn on its owners. And so I think they walked that back pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think they're right to, to walk it back. Dave, I think the mission is critical. <laughs> you don't understand how important. Actually, you know, Stuart, I went and read it. This was not a statement just out of the blue. It was part of a presentation at a future wars conference regarding of the reports of what had happened in the simulation. So the officer had heard about the simulation. He hadn't been participant in the simulation. But truth be told, and the, the Air Force doesn't want you to know this, but there's no reason to think that he made up what had happened in the simulation. And, and, okay. At the same yeah. time, so, so this they, is standard AI sort of stuff that I th- these are yes. the sort of things that if you follow AI, AI finds ways to trick the operators in order to achieve the, the goal that the operator has specified for it all the time in all sorts of contexts. So this is the sort of thing where... If yep. they were talking about just what could happen if we try to do this, well, this is a standard outcome scenario that they would be talking about. So whether or not this actually happened, it's entirely conceivable that it was suggested to him as a possible scenario. And that's how the idea got put into his mind. Okay. All right. Well, so now that we have beaten what's left of the AI, just one piece of good news Paul, there was a story suggesting that OpenAI has found a way, or at least thinks they're on the way to developing AI that is less likely to lie to us by essentially 
requiring the AI model not just to get the answer right, but to get each step of the reasoning toward that answer right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Right now, essentially, AI is graded on its final outcome. If you think of generative AI of a picture, for example, of a human face, the only thing that's, that is responsive in helping to tune the network is some assessment of whether or not the ultimate picture that was presented is actually a human face or not. What this change in processing information would do, in effect, is to break that ultimate result down into all the multiple steps that go into producing it, whether it's uh, producing a face for uh, generative AI or producing a legal analysis of a claimed uh, liability for an uh, an aviation incident that's recently happened. I think they're absolutely correct that the more you, you break down the pieces, the less likely that the additive effect of errors will tend to divert, and the more likely it is that they'll be able to immediately course correct and, and produce answers that are closer to the actual truth. On the other hand, as Nick Weaver would tell you, our resident AI skeptic, that still means that it's an assessment of each smaller hallucination. So it's actually just only a little bit reductionist in nature. It's not exactly a complete answer. For me, at least, the answer is TBD. It's, it is, I think you, you correctly said, a good step in recognizing that there's a problem and that there's a possible process-oriented calibration solution that is superior to the outcome-oriented solution that already exists. But we'll see. All right. So, Gus, Mark tells us that, you know, all this great regulations is about to come and out of the FTC, but the FTC is already producing lots and lots of regulation. Can you kind of give us a quick tour of all the controversies that the FTC has stepped into? No, there are so many. And (laughs) we'll just focus on the last week in the FTC. How's that? Um, And and there, there are forthcoming big data and AI-related comments that are not unique to the FTC, but the FTC is participating in these. So uh, yes, the FTC is keenly aware of and interested in AI issues. But looking broader than AI issues, what's been going on in FTC land this past week? Probably the biggest news is a pair of settlements with Amazon, about $30.6, $30.8 million in settlements relating to two complaints that the FTC had brought. The first relating to children's privacy issues, basically that Amazon had been storing information about children indefinitely and what does indefinitely mean? Does that mean forever? That would be a no-no. Or does that mean for some indefinite period of time? That's gray area. Was the data they were keeping, was it just kids' voices that they were using for training and they'd gotten rid of all the other data? Or was there more I data? I think it was just the training data, but I'm not sure. So it may not even have included identification information. It's just that they had the kids' voices and they were trying to do a better job of understanding kids when right. they talk. Right, and we'll get to the punchline of this in just a moment. The other one was a $5.8 million settlement over a complaint that an Amazon employee back in 2017 was able to use their Ring camera to store and access videos of customers, including women in their house. Obvious, clear, 
in their in, bathroom. In, in, in their bathroom, I, I, in their bedroom. I, I kind of wonder who has their has a doorbell in their yeah, bathroom. That, but I, yeah. I didn't understand that part either. But that that's not an Amazon issue. That's a user issue. But nonetheless, <laughs> this right. is obviously a serious no no. Basic data security and compliance sort of issues there. But Amazon had addressed those issues on the back end before the complaint was brought. But nonetheless. Obviously, there can be a complaint there. The interesting thing about both of these complaints is that they were settled. The FTC currently has a pretty big, we don't like to settle cases posture. We're going to litigate cases posture. The the COPPA complaint, the $25 million settlement, that was particularly interesting because in order to pursue that, FTC had to hand it off to the Department of Justice. And apparently, the Department of Justice decided to settle it. Unclear whether the FTC on its own would have been willing to settle, but apparently the folks at DOJ looked at it and decided, no, this isn't an enforcement priority or we don't have a case. Who knows what happens in their internal discussions, but they decided to pursue a settlement with Amazon here. For my eyes, that's the interesting thing out of these new new items. It suggests that the FTC is kind of straining some of its government partners' patients with some of the cases. Uh, maybe straining their patients, or it could be more trivially different enforcement priorities, but certainly the FTC has been straining some entities in the government, federal judges, patients with many of its enforcement efforts. And Meta. So... This is a development in a case or news item from about a month ago. On May 3rd, the FTC announced that they were going to try and change the 2019 settlement that they had with Meta. Back then, it was known still as Facebook. The idea here, or the concern here, so back 2019, they entered into a settlement over Meta's privacy policies and The concern is Meta allegedly misled parents about their ability to control who their kids were going to be able to communicate with on Facebook Messenger. And there's a separate kids version of Messenger. And in response to that potential, I don't know the ins and outs enough to say whether there actually was a violation of the consent decree, the settlement. But in response to those concerns, the FTC back in May said, we're, you violated the consent decree, so we're going to alter the terms of that decree. Pray we alter them no further. We are going to prohibit you from monetizing children's data, full stop, moving forward. And Facebook Meta this past week has submitted a motion to the courts saying, hey, the FTC can't unilaterally amend these consent decrees, not just because we don't think that they can do that, but because these consent decrees are overseen by the courts. So Article 3 courts, you all are the ones who need to update or revise or look at the facts here and consider whether these need to be revised. So that changes the procedure fundamentally. That seems like a Big legal issues to still be unresolved a hundred years after the FTC was created. It, it, there's never been a settlement that the FTC wanted to change and it went to court to see whether the court was approving that or is this a brand new idea on the FTC's uh, part? Generally, when something like this happens, the FTC and the parties they would say, hey, we recognize that there's a problem here. We're going to negotiate a change and go to the court and you could have it approved. 
So the interesting yeah. thing here is that Meta is challenging it. And then the question is, how does yeah, and, it move uh, forward? Uh, my first reaction, first, it's very hard to tell from, there's a report about uh, an FTC statement about what was found in the, there was an auditor the, that had to be appointed. The auditor wrote a long report. Practically everything about that report is redacted, but it looks as though the one violation that the auditor identified was this problem that kids could not talk to kids who weren't on their approved list unless they entered into a chat room. And then the chat room did not have restrictions that said nobody can be in this chat room unless they're approved to talk to everybody else in the chat room. And you can understand how that could have happened. It's hard to see that that's like a gross abuse of the FTC or oh, disobedience to the FTC. And I have to say, saying, so we saw you did this, you made this mistake, and we're going to just impose what amounts to a commercial death penalty yep. on your dealings with kids. That does seem like pretty aggressive tactics on the FTC. Well, part. it's you're missing the forest for the leaves here, Stuart. The issue is that the current FTC leadership doesn't like the 2019 consent decree and thinks it didn't go far enough. And this is an opportunity for them to rewrite it as they would have wanted to write it five years ago if they had been in charge of the commission at the time. When they famously right. were not, because it was a Democratic, a Republican right. commission. Yeah. Okay. Well, it will be interesting, but this will take a long time to work its way through the courts. Uh, it there are long times to work things through the court, Stuart, and then there are long times. I don't think this will take a really long time. It could be a really interesting issue, but I mean, it's entirely possible that the court looks at this motion, agrees with Meta and says, FTC, what are you doing? And the FTC goes back to the drawing board, says, let's take a deep breath and they don't move forward. I don't think that's the likely outcome, but if this were to be fully litigated, sure, just like any sort of this, these issues could right. take a long time. I would not be willing to wager that this issue will outlive the current FTC chair's current term as chair, not least of which because the uh, House committee has just announced a an oversight probe into FTC chair Lena Khan and her management of the FTC. So certainly there's scrutiny more broadly of the going-ons at the FTC. I think that just makes her a, more of a hero on the left, at least. And there's a theory that she should have recused herself in all Amazon cases because she had expressed views about Amazon. I don't find that especially persuasive. But is there a doctrine that would require to recuse yourself over uh, Amazon? The Amazon, I personally, I'm an academic. So I write articles all the time, taking positions all the time. She, when she was a law student, she has published multiple academic articles taking aggressive positions. That's probably insufficient for recusal. There have been discussions about statements she's made about Meta as well and whether those should trigger recusals. The investigation is asking for documents relating to, for instance, former Commissioner Wilson's unredacted opinion in the meta litigation where she had dissented and some other litigation to get a sense of what are the dynamics and the commission right now and how much of what's going on is really predetermined. There's another, I won't say more than 15 seconds on this, Stuart, I promise. 
Another really interesting procedural change that the uh, commission has just announced. Historically, they have an administrative law judge, an ALJ, that acts as an independent decision maker for initial decisions in cases. And the commission is changing that so that the ALJ will now only issue recommended decisions, which all of which will now need to be approved by the full commission. This, I think, is probably a ministerial response and a really legitimate response to ongoing concerns from the Supreme Court about the constitutionality of administrative law judges. But if you, <laughs> but it does nothing to do. It does nothing about the Supreme Court's doubts right. about the constitutionality right. of the and FTC. If, if you have concerns <laughs> about, well, is the FTC a biased decision maker who is that's a rogue entity with predetermined outcomes? Well, boy, oh boy, this looks really bad. All right, let's go to China, Paul. Yeah. There were a few sort of, I would say, bite-sized stories about China that are probably worth walking through. Can we call them bite dance size stories? (laughs) Yes. Since one of them is about TikTok? Yeah. Three bite-sized notable stories about China, all of which I think trend in the same direction, which is to reemphasize the continuing dissonance between American approaches to technology and Chinese ones. One of them was a story about the Chinese equivalent to Bloomberg. It's a company, uh, Wind, uh, I think, right? Wind Information that essentially provides the same financial services types of information that uh, a subscription to Bloomberg would, would uh, provide. It's widely used in China. It's widely used outside of China for information about China. And all of a sudden, the Wall Street Journal has discovered that less information is available and that China is restricting access to certain of the financials of Chinese-based companies. This may or may not be related to the broader use of Chinese law through the anti-espionage provisions to clamp down on the dissemination of information about China outside of, outside of its borders. I suspect it is, but it's not necessarily true. Yep. Uh, the second is a rather amusing story that it appears as though TikTok creators who are uh, a cadre of people who are high-value uh, adherents to TikTok and create content for the app. We should all aspire to be TikTok creators and who monetize their efforts, that their financial information is or appears to be available within China. If this turns out to be true, and there's been a dis- there's a dispute about this, but if this turns out to be true, it would be inconsistent with the sworn testimony of TikTok CEO to the House of Representatives the other day, that information about Americans is not maintained in China. It's either maintained in Virginia or in some instances in Singapore. And if this proves to actually be wrong, that would, of course, reemphasize for Congress its distrust of TikTok. And if it was knowingly, if the CEO knew it to be wrong at the time of his testimony, potentially an allegation of perjury, though that seems awful far And then the third is a simple note that Malaysia, no doubt because of its proximity to China, has chosen not to ban Huawei from seeking to become a part of its 5G network. This uh, causes Malaysia to diverge from, say, how the United States is treating it, treating Huawei. 
and they will leave it to their local companies to make decisions. Uh, my own experience sometimes living in Costa Rica is that in the absence of a government mandate against the use of Huawei products, they tend to proliferate because they are substantially cheaper than non-Chinese products and reasonably functional. And so you know, in Costa Rica, Huawei's all over our 5G network and Huawei handsets are the common currency. Didn't I see that the U.S. and the EU are getting together to try to offer money to Costa Rica to not use Huawei in their structure? They, they are indeed. And my prediction is that in the end, we'll take that money because that's cash is king. But truth be told, it's going to be very interesting to see how it's unwound out of our network. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, Chris, uh, it's much easier to build, to exclude it going you know, at the front end than it is to eliminate it later on. Both because uh, I, I gather it is technologically, you know, ju just the transition is technologically difficult. And I imagine it's going to be awful hard to verify that Huawei software wasn't left behind and is no longer in any way impinging on the hardware network that remains. So, yep, at the same time that I would say most of this suggests that the U.S. is going to have some trouble abroad with its decoupling initiatives. The China initiative has bumped into some problems, not completely, but, you know, when somebody who's been convicted of lying to the government and his institutions about his ties to China gets a sentence of two days time served, it doesn't sound like the court took the criminal offense particularly seriously. Yeah, you're talking about Professor Lieber from Harvard, mm -hmm. who had an affiliation with Wuhan University in China that he hadn't fully disclosed to Harvard. There's some yeah, obvious factual disputes at the depths, but in the end, he was charged with lying to the federal government about the nature of those connections subsequently. And as you said, he's uh, been sentenced to just two days in jail, two years supervised probation. He was uh, allowed to quietly retire from Harvard. And, you know, in one way, I think I take your point, Stuart, that's not much of a penalty. On the other hand, I actually thought it, that it would have a pretty substantial deterrent effect. And I'd probably ask Gus, the academic, what it would be like to be forced to retire from your tenured chair. And, you know, I imagine that's a pretty significant penalty for Lieber and would be viewed as a pretty significant deterrent by most tenured faculty. And so I share your view that, yeah, two days is bupkis. Yeah. That's a technical term. But I tend to think that the collateral impacts here were pretty significant, especially at a place like Harvard or, you know, any of the major research universities in America where tenure is the coin of the realm. Yeah, I mean, it basically ends his career. He's unhirable probably elsewhere, but it's not going to jail. It's not disgorgement. It's not losing money that he'd received from the university. It is a career-ending sort of move, but it's also a not a punishment in a traditional sense. And he was chair of chemistry. 
he was a, he so, was a, he was apparently viewed himself and others apparently felt the same way as a candidate for a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Which is also something he's not going to get. He's at not going to get. Well, and I think it's worth pointing out that his lawyers have been saying for some time he has an advanced stage lymphoma. He's suffering from an advanced lymphoma, which is, you know, often a death sentence. And so maybe he's not going to live very long. And I tend not to think after you've been through all of the pain of a criminal trial that we should be focused on putting you in jail for years, especially yeah. if his health is where it is. But a- still. Actually, Stuart, the bigger challenge to the government's efforts to kind of enforce restrictions on collaboration with China is the temple professor, Zhang Ji, whose civil suit was Zhao uh, Ji, I may be pronouncing it, whose civil suit against the FBI for malicious prosecution was just reinstated by the Court of Appeals. Yeah, um, they, they dropped it, they charged him, and then they dropped it pretty quickly because they realized right. that they had made a mistake about the technology. And he's still very upset, he and his family, because, of course, they came and rousted him with his family. The decision, the ACLU was part of the team, so they are hyping this as a victory. The appellate decision actually said, no, you do not have a claim for relief directly from the Constitution. You might have a tort claim under the Federal Tort Claims Act, which even that, I guess the argument here is if they acted unconstitutionally in arresting him, then that's not a discretionary function, and therefore you can bring a Tort Claims Act. My bet is this is one of those things where the claim in the motion to dismiss is based on a pretty aggressive interpretation of the facts, and it's not going to look as much like a constitutional violation when we get to the end of it. I think that's right, but I also think that this is not a trial the FBI wants to have because they quite plainly did err in yes. you know breaking down the guy's door. And so if I were a betting man, having survived at the motion to dismiss stage, I'm guessing that the government gives him some money to go away. And if they have to give him money to go away, that too is another knock against the overall plan to use federal investigative, criminal investigative resources to try and tamp down on collaboration with China. Okay. Yep, I agree. All right, Gus, Microsoft has told us that they are facing a potential $400 million liability for European data protection violations involving LinkedIn and advertising. We don't actually know much about this, do we? Because they just announced that they were reserving the funds, not that they'd lost right. the case. So, well, they've, they've lost the case. But Microsoft <laughs> announced this week that they are putting aside $425 million in anticipation of a fine being levied against them by the Irish Data Protection Commission they've seen a private draft of the decision. So okay. uh, they've said that much. So they're going to lose. They've also said that they're going to appeal and fight this to the end of the earth. This stems from GDPR adoption era targeted advertising by LinkedIn. This is one of many investigations that the um, IDFPC has ongoing relating to various firms. I think the real story here isn't the Microsoft news. 
It's to read this in conjunction with the IDPC's £1 billion, $1.3 billion fine from about two weeks ago against Meta, in which they held that standard contractual clauses are unenforceable. This is all just gearing up towards American firms can't do business in the European Union. See our friend Max Schrems and failure of rejection by the European Union of whatever the data shield, whatever the latest iteration of the uh, US EU safe privacy. Is. It's, the, it's the privacy. Um, it's the privacy pr- right. framework. They've gotten less ambitious in their- well, They've run out uh, of titles <laughs> is the issue, Stuart. So this is just going to continue to be this messy fight over how can American firms do business in the EU and the UK, of course. So we don't know anything about the actual details of the Microsoft decision coming out of the IDPC. I would bet dollars to donuts there's some discussion of standard contractual clauses in there and that this is going to reflect uh, uh, yeah. the meta decision okay. as well. So the IDPC is the Irish Data Protection Commission, I guess. And for those of you who would like to hear me say rude things about the European side of the data protection framework, of the privacy framework, I'm not going to say it now because I want to hold my fire. About 10 days from today, I will be debating Max Strems one-on-one with a referee, and anybody who wants to hear it can... Tune in to the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Projects Teleforum. It's at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the 15th. We might get to do it as a bonus edition of the podcast, and I will certainly do that if that works. But if you want to catch it live, that's the place to be. So there we have it. Organic advertising for the uh, the regulatory transparency project. Yep. If, if you, it's a minor point from Schrems's perspective, but if you have a chance, ask him how he squares the European commitment to legal certainty with the idea that the SCCs could be vitiated retroactive. I mean, it's, it certainly would strike me as a reasonable, reasonable in terms of structure to say prospectively you may no longer rely on the SCCs, but there's a strong principle of legal certainty in most EU law that that the justices in the meta case just ignored which says you know we won't apply fines retrospectively typically if you're within a facially legitimate safe harbor which of course the standard contractual clauses would be yeah that's not a biggie for him but i think that's right i think that the likely answer is the likely answer for much of this oh well that might be reasonable except we're talking about americans here (laughs) so okay two or three more things and one i just can't resist paul The State Department has weighed in on Ah. 702. Brett Holmgren, who is in charge of the intel and analysis part of state, which is one of their, you know, it's a very smart group of people, small but high quality. And he says large chunks of what we do depends on 702. Yeah, no, I mean, this is both unsurprising and surprising. The surprising part of it is that it's the Department of State, who is usually, you know, the, mo- the most interested in trying to accommodate European privacy interests. I think that's a fair characterization. And for an assistant secretary of state to have gotten clearance from the other bureaus within the Department of State to come out this strongly in favor of Section 702 reauthorization reflects, I think, a surprising degree of consensus within the administration. And I think inferentially kind of tells us a story about how significant Section 702 
as it currently is structured, really is through ongoing intelligence collection and use. It is unsurprising in the sense that this is part of a very broad administration-wide effort to kind of tell the story about 702 in a way that will get it reauthorized with none or minimal changes by the end of the year, which is, of course, going to be the most uh, significant intelligence legislative battle of this year, and in which the administration is, I think, fighting a a significant uphill battle in Congress as right-wing Freedom Caucus meets the left-wing Progressive Caucus in their in their dislike of intelligence activities, broadly speaking. Yes and no. I have spent some time working on this because I think 702 needs to be renewed, but I'm happy to see some reforms. My strong sense is the animus toward the FBI is visceral and deep. And so it's very hard for the FBI to make arguments that it should keep access to 702 and things are going, have finally turned a corner and they can be trusted to, to do it according to the rules. That's a tough sell. And there will certainly be other reforms. I don't hear as many people saying, let's get rid of it among the people who are actually paying attention, which is only probably 15, 20% of Congress right now. So my guess is we're going to see it. It'll be very tight and a lot of pain. And the fight over the reforms will be, do we get reforms that cripple the program or reforms that are consistent with a good intelligence program? That I, I remains think that's to be right, seen. Stuart. I, though my fear, of course, is that given the way that Congress is constipated, that you know all this will happen at the very end of the year and it will turn out badly because of the rush. Yeah. I also am significantly concerned that the animus for the FBI will wind up throwing a lot of the baby out with the bathwater, which is to say, certainly some of the cybersecurity activity that even the FBI is undertaking that is not domestic in nature at all, but is very much quasi-espionages, will probably, I fear that the price of renewal is going to be excision of the FBI, which will, in the end, ultimately amount to a re-erection of the pre-911 death uh, as to 702. It, it, yeah, it's very dangerous because then the only people who would have access to a bunch of stuff that is potentially very important about Americans who might be in touch with foreign terrorists or foreign uh, cyber attackers, the only people who could look at that are people who hate to look at stuff involving Americans because they know that it's the third rail of intelligence. And Absolutely. so they would, as you say, they would say, hey, can I think of a reason not to look at that? And if they're thinking of a reason not to look at it, then they're thinking of a reason not to find people who could be here planning to do us harm. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a bad I up. think that's absolutely right. On the other side of the coin, of course, is that the FBI's absolute inability over the course of 10 years to implement controls in a way that withstands scrutiny and is effective really is one of the great bureaucratically administrative failures yeah, it's a proud and stubborn institution that has gotten away with being proud and stubborn. Not something that's not all that's going on here, but there is an element of that. And I've heard people say, "Well, why don't we just tell the director that you don't have a ten-year term anymore, and you report to the uh, assistant attorney general for national security and crim? Uh, you don't even report into the front office of the Justice Department." I don't think that's going to happen, but that is the kind of thing people want to do. They really want to take the institution down a peg for what they think is institutional arrogance. It's weird to some degree because you're blaming the FBI for 
investigating cases that the Justice Department has decided to investigate. So it's a little bit weird, but it is where we are politically. All right. I promised Gus that he could do a Mickey Rooney rant about why those tip suggestions that we've all learned, you know, you show up someplace and basically you're in what amounts to the automat. You, you plug in what you want and it comes out on a tray from the back office. And then you're asked, do you want to give the people who put that on the tray a 15% or a 20 or a 25% tip? And Gus, is that a dark pattern that uh, Lena Khan should be on? I was going to do a rant about that. And so I'm going to do a rant about you because I'm looking at the clock and I'm looking <laughs> at the rundown and I'm looking at how you put my rant at the end of the rundown when you knew we wouldn't have much time. So I think this is a dark pattern. This is a dark pattern that you have created here to make sure I don't spend enough time going off on my rant about dark patterns. But no. <laughs> I'm with you. Look, I'm with you. I It, it pisses me off because... I I have to say I grew up thinking a ten percent tip was a it's a tip and fifteen percent was for good service and to be told you don't even make the cut and if you want to put ten percent in you have to poke away while the guy you're stiffing watches you it's clearly there's a disincentive to say ten percent yeah, so it's not even the amount of tips it's so there were a couple of stories this past week about all of these tipped prompts that we're seeing across. All sorts of things. You go to the the stories are about baristas, Starbucks. They're now giving you prompts. Do you want to tip 25%, 20%, 15%? And baristas are loving this because the default previously was, well, I need to affirmatively decide to add a couple dollars. And now that decision is being made for you. So they're getting a lot more money from tips, I personally think is great for them. But also in Ubers, you're seeing this in cabs, you're seeing this, you go to the laundromat, uh, you put your 25 cents in the laundromat, you get a text, I'm making this up now, but it's not too far <laughs> from the realm of reality. After you put your 25 cents in the dryer, you get a text saying, thanks for using the laundromat. How much of a tip would you like to leave? $2, $5, $10. And okay, well, the, this is being <laughs> framed in a way that is nudging you, I'm just throwing out words now, to give the laundromat an extra $15 on your 25 cent use of their dryer. And the stories that we've been seeing this past week are, this is really great. It's great for baristas. They love this. But I read these stories and I just think, isn't this, aren't these dark patterns? Isn't this the exact same yeah. stuff that we're concerned about? Websites lying to you about how many people are booking hotels in order to trick you into spending more money, giving the company more money than you're going to. And there, there are two things about this that I really like. And I approach this from an intellectual big picture perspective. The first is it demonstrates how fundamentally incoherent and interesting the concept of dark patterns are. There's something really interesting going on. Eye of the beholder, from one perspective, this is really great. This is really good. And I like tipping. This makes it easier to tip. It makes it less awkward to tip. So that's good. But it's also making it easier for one side of the bargain to extract rents, extract money from the other side of the bargain. And it's guilting people into giving money that might not have been deserved. That's kind of not good. The other thing that I really like about this, I put this alongside the FTC has a subscription cancelization rule, a, a rule that they've proposed where companies need to make it as easy to cancel a service as it is to start that service. So 
this is meant to go after the evil cable companies, making it hard to cancel your cable service or Netflix, making it easier to sign up, but then really hard to cancel your service or whatever. And the real target of these it's the newspapers and the New York Times in particular makes it so damn hard to cancel your subscription and so easy to start your subscription. And I just love that the FTC, they're really coming after baristas and their newfound way of getting tips and the New York Times. So baristas and New York Times, the FTC is coming after you. <laughs> okay. Well, I would say, notwithstanding the dark pattern that I provided, you got that rant in. You got in two rants, frankly. <laughs> okay. So can you do a short update on the Journalism Preservation Act, which has not yet passed in California, but which is already producing a lot yeah, of angst? so the quip squib here is California is considering and seems likely to pass the California Journalism Preservation Act, which is basically Facebook needs to pay journalists for content that they that are, that's available on Facebook. The political economy of this is really complicated. Canada, Australia have considered similar things. The two, the three big picture things that I'll say here, like I just added a third. First, likely if it goes into effect and Facebook meta doesn't alter their business practices, likely to benefit companies behind the scenes and the broader ecosystem more than local journalists, not likely to benefit local journalists nearly as much as we would naively expect. But that no it, Fox News, Fox yeah, News. Will um, do well. And even th that's based upon a faulty assumption that Meta isn't just going to pull news content from their site in California. They are currently exploring how to do this in Canada. And when Australia yeah. a couple years ago considered something else, they said, okay, we're just not going to host news. We're going to pull all local news content in Australia. We're not going to deal with this. I wonder if there isn't a Section 230 argument that if I post something and I put a link to a New York Times article and it, it results in an ad being served, why can't Facebook say, hey, that wasn't us. We shouldn't be liable for anything that somebody else publishes. Uh, not sure I'm seeing the Section 230 connection you're drawing there. Well, if users, I mean, all of the Facebook links are user posts, right? So a user posts a link to the New York Times and people go there and they read the advertisements on the New York Times site. And then California says, well, you owe, you Meta owe us money because Stuart Baker posted a link. And Meta says, hey, that was Stuart Baker's doing and we shouldn't be liable. So it, that gets us to a broader set of federal preemption style questions. And even Stuart, are you really going to make me say dormant commerce clause? Um, we've got commerce clause issues <laughs> that are in oh, the background with lots a, of can, how can states regulate? Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I hear people uh, snoozing so away. The, the, yes. I said there were three things. The last thing, Stuart, you put in a plug for your upcoming podcast. A colleague of mine, Kyle Langvart, and I, we just published a symposium on the Journal of Free Speech Law. This is also going to appear in a forthcoming book that we have coming out with Cambridge University Press, but you all should go take a look at it. One of the topics in this symposium is sustaining journalistic institutions. We've got four papers coming out that look at the viability of business models and how platforms are affecting the viability of media institutions. So Journal of Free Speech Law, we've got four papers that you all can go read on this very topic 
right now. Okay. Well, Paul, Gus has consumed all of the time yeah, yeah, left. It's okay. <laughs> so can I pitch my own two weeks from today on the 19th at 2 p.m.? Also with the Federalist Regulatory Transparency Project, I'm debating our good friend Jamil Jaffer about the efficacy of President Biden's proposal to impose liability on people who write bad code. Okay. Thanks to Gus. Thanks to Paul. Thanks to Mark for a fun and surprisingly long session. If you know somebody, and this now I'm talking to the audience, if you know somebody who is looking for a chance to break into podcasting, we're looking for an intern part-time. But if you want to produce the Cyberlaw Podcast, send your resume to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Send comments and you know, rude remarks there as well, or leave us a review. This has been episode 461 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Dave, I, I think the mission is critical.